Welcome back to New Books and Political Science. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm honored to have four scholars who have shaped and contributed to a new anthology, Black Political Thought, from David Walker to the Present, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. The editor of the book is Dr. Cheryl O. Pinder, professor of political science at California State University. Cheryl has authored several books on race, gender, social welfare policy, Black Political Thought, Globalization Studies, and Whiteness Studies. Welcome to the podcast, Cheryl. Thank you. The book's divided into six sections, and I'm pleased to welcome scholars who have contributed essays that contextualize and interpret the primary documents. Dr. Brenda E. Stevenson is the Nicole Family Endowed Chair and Professor of History and African American Studies at UCLA. Her award-winning books include uh, one on Charlotte Grimke, Family and Community in the Slave South, Gender, Race, and the Origins of the L.A. Riots, Focusing on the Murder of Letitia Harlins, and a book exploring slavery. She brings this body of scholarship to part one, Slavery and Its Discontents. Welcome, Brenda. Thank you. Dr. Babakar Mbay is a professor of English at Kent State University. He's published books on Black cosmopolitanism and anti-colonialism, pan-African influence in early Black diaspora narratives, and co-edited a book on placing American popular music in local and global contexts. He brings his wide-ranging research interests to his essay on Black nationalism for part three. Welcome to New Books. Thank you. Dr. Sharice Burden-Stelly is an assistant professor and Mellon faculty fellow of Africana Studies and Political Science at Carleton College. Her research creatively combines political theory, political economy, and intellectual history with a focus on racial capitalism and the Black radical tradition. She's the co-author of an ambitious study of W.E.B. Du Bois and is completing a monograph on anti-radicalism and anti-Blackness in U.S. capitalism. Her essay, Race and Racism, traces approaches to race in the 19th century, focusing on Alexander Crummel, Du Bois, and Ida B. Wells. Welcome to the podcast, Sharice. Thank you for having me. Cheryl, you are are the book's editor. Um, You introduced the goals in your opening essay on the key concepts, ideas, and issues that have formed Black political thought. And you also write part five's essay on feminism and difference. There are some anthologies in political theory, philosophy, and sociology, but this book is very different in its ambition, creativity, and scope. Um, It uniquely embraces interdisciplinarity and explicitly um, engages gender. Um, It also connects theory and lived experience. So I'm wondering, how did you come to edit this book? And who was the intended audience? And what were you hoping for it to contribute? Okay, thank you for the question. I think it is an important question to start this uh, discussion. And actually, I was inspired uh, to propose a new class in political science at CSU Chico, where I teach. And the new class uh, was supposed to be titled Black political thought. I looked around and I saw that there was a need for a foundational book for graduates 
graduate as well as undergraduate students and faculty uh, working in the fields of uh, Black studies and African-American studies, as well as other disciplines in the humanities and social sciences, including political science, American studies, ethnic studies, women's studies, and sociology. Uh, but uh, my underlining motivation for compiling Black political thought uh, was really to contribute and expand uh, the limited scholarship on Black political thought. And furthermore, in order not to overlook uh, the multifaceted concerns, uh, intellectual backgrounds, and the array of political theorizing that constitute uh, Black political thought, I was, uh, I was careful uh, not to treat Black political thought as if a Black perspective, and I put Black perspective in quotes, as if a Black perspective is what makes it political. Uh, in fact, uh, when you look at the chapters in each section, uh, uh, they're by no means an uh, exhaustive or indubitable account of Black political thought. There are more details to add, to subtract, uh, refine, reformulate, and so forth. But what I like about this book in its complex uh, mold is uh, that it offers uh, new ideas and pedagogical tools to assist students uh, in gaining some foundational knowledge of past, present, and future issues concerning Blacks in the United States. Uh, but uh, Black political, I think it's good for a critical examination of race relations in the United States. And it opens up space for us to reconsider how and why today anti-Black racism rears its ugly face beyond uh, colorblindness and post-raciality. When Blacks are shot and killed by the police with little or no accountability, uh, the impetus uh, for the Black Lives Matter movement. I titled the book Black Political Thought from uh, David Walker to the Present because I think that David Walker is uh, indeed the father of American political political thought. And uh, when I read David Walker's appeal, of course, the title is longer. I think uh, that uh, David Walker appeal offers one of the, uh, one of the um, uh, 19th century uh, most incisive and vivid indictment of American racism, or to be more precise, anti-Black racism, uh, which is the categorical structure in the United States that uh, reinforce and oppose the unequal positioning of Blacks. In fact, uh, the Cartesian binary of whites as superior and Blacks as inferior is baked in the American racialized modernity and its abuse of the enlightenment promise of liberty and freedom of all conformed in the Declaration of Independence, 
we all these truths to be self-evident that all men, and of course men, uh, is in quotation marks, are created equally and has the right to the uh, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, but starting with slavery, blacks free or slaves were excluded from the self-evident truths of equal humanity as what I call the unus or the essence of man is immediately reconfigured into the whatness or the essence of man. Uh, so I started the book with slavery and its discontent, and I am indeed grateful for Professor Brenda Stevenson erudite introduction on slavery and its discontent. So I will uh, stop now and uh, leave uh, these brilliant comments to Professor Stevenson. Thank you. Let me ask you one more question before we turn to Brenda. Um, This book, so I want to say, so two things. One, I think this is a brilliant textbook for students. And I think it's the book that has not been out there as somebody who teaches American political thought and has tried to pull some of these documents together or find a reader that has some merit, but also has things missing. So it's, it's a, it's a fantastic contribution to political science as a discipline in terms of pedagogy. But I would also say that for those people who like myself, are political theorists and do write on some of these topics, this is still a remarkable resource for them as well. These introductions do read like short journal articles. They pull together really interesting pieces of the uh, scholars' research. So in addition to being an amazing textbook and something that's accessible to the general reader, I also think it's, it's, it's useful for all of us. Um, Cheryl, before we go to Brenda, how did you assemble the group of scholars? It's such an interdisciplinary group. Um, how did that happen? Yeah, actually, I sent out an email asking for scholars, and uh, this was extremely a laborious task uh, because uh, scholars are busy and uh, they add other commitments. Uh, But I was uh, recommended to ask Professor Stevenson from another professor. And so I emailed her and she responded very quickly and accepted the invitation. Uh, But something that uh, she said in the email, which inspired me uh, enormously, uh, was to include a feminist scholarship into the text. And so I agreed, and uh, she responded again, and we were communicating about this. And she uh, agreed to write uh, on slavery and its discontent. And actually, uh, for Professor Borden Stelly, uh, she was recommended to me uh, from uh, Professor Cedric Johnson. Uh, We were colleagues at... uh, Hobart and William Smith Colleges when I was a visiting scholar there. And uh, I sent her the email she accepted. And uh, Professor Membe, actually, he had contributed to an edited volume that I did uh, on American Multicultural Studies. Uh, He wrote uh, the introductory part. 
And I thought I should contact him and ask him if he would like to contribute to this volume. And of course, he said yes. And so I want to take this opportunity to thank uh, Professors Membe, Professors Burden Stelly, and Professor uh, Brenda Stevenson for uh, contributing to this uh, volume. I think uh, your contribution is invaluable. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Well, Brenda, your essay begins with, let your motto be resistance, resistance, resistance in caps. Um, why is resistance central? What forms does it take? And, and why begin with David Walker, given the theme of resistance? Well, I think um, if you look at African-American history broadly, um, from the beginning, from the beginning of Africans arriving um, in the Americas, even prior to that, actually being taken as enslaved peoples, you will see resistance. You'll see resistance from that moment um, all the way to the barracoons on the coast of Africa, to the slave ship in the Middle Passage. Um, Africans escaped as soon as they possibly could once they were um, arrived in the Americas. There was from the very beginning shipboard slave revolts. There were um, slave revolts on throughout the Americas. Marinage um, was an important way. And of course, the day-to-day um, psychological resistance of the dehumanization and brutality of slavery, um, of enslavement. So resistance is... Um, part of the culture of being a people removed from their indigenous um, societies and coming to a place where they are thought of as othered and as different and as inferior and resisting um, that definition of themselves. The essay really highlights the role of organizations like the American and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society or the American Anti-Slavery Society. And, and you know how some of the organizations were racially or gender segregated. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about the importance of those different spaces for resistance. Well, I think it's important to understand that resistance movements and um, freedom movements and the Freedom Project um, broadly considered, it's not one that would appear to people um, outside of it as being perfect or uh, being something that um, is itself produces equality necessarily, even among themselves. We have very different attitudes about how to approach a particular problem. And you see this played out in the abolitionist movement. Um, you will see, um, for example, that as you indicated, many of the organized abolitionist societies were either gender segregated or racial, racially segregated. That is, some did not include any women or, or, or people or black people. Um, and some included women, but not black people. Some included black men, but not black women. And so you have all these different kinds of organizations that uh, are there. They're moving towards the goal of ending the slave trade or ending um, enslavement of Black people. Some of them want to do it gradually. Some of them want to do it immediately. So there's all different ways in which they approach 
um, the larger problems. But yes, the same kinds of um, bigotry that you find, uh, whether it's sexist, whether it's um, uh, racist, etc., that you find in the general society, you also find in these um, organizations. And that's often surprising to people because, you know, abolitionists are um, important. Their, their work is good. Um, what they want to achieve is good, uh, morally good, that is. But they are still people within the society um, of the early 19th century. And that is society that is sexist, that is a society that is racist, that is a society that is classist. Uh, and so all those things, and that also um, um, discriminates according to how old you are as well, um, whether or not you're urban from the city or whether or not you're from um, the rural areas, whether or not you're well-educated or not. You see all these kinds of biases in, when you look at the organizations associated with the abolitionist movement. And that and that thread goes throughout the book. This 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 tension among people in the movement as to you know whether elites should 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 help rise you know help 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 another group change or whether all people should be respected. It, it, as you were putting together the the people to include in this section, what was not included? You you ended up with Harry Highland Garnett. With Frederick Douglass, with uh, Martin Robeson, uh, Delaney, and, and Maria Stewart, was there somebody that you were dying to include, and you went back and forth? Was it easy? How 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 did you come to these people to represent? Sorry, along with David Walker, slavery and and the the push against slavery, both from enslaved and free people. Well, I, I believe if I remember, I think Cheryl was about to say this, that she assigned the people for us to um, review. Or I didn't make that um, distinction myself. I included Mariah Stewart, I insisted, on, as she said, including a Black feminist voice. Um, but And my choice was Mariah Stewart. So, But I believe she was the person or her advisors were the, along with her, decided who we, we should cover. Cheryl, can I ask you what, how hard was that to come up with the, the people for each of these themes? Uh, yes, actually, it was uh, extremely difficult uh, because uh, some of the review reviewers commented on uh, me omitting certain important scholars. So I uh, decided to respond to the reviewers and to say, well, yes, all these scholars are extremely important for uh, black any uh, book on black political thought. So I've decided to include a a bibliography at the end of uh, each section, so that I can add uh, scholars that uh, are were or are supposed to be part of the collection. Uh, but I didn't add. So uh, there is a, a, a bibliography or a reference uh, with other scholars so that students and professors can go to these readings and uh, get more on Black political thought. No, and I found that very helpful. And actually, I spent a lot of time last week ordering books. So the bibliography was really helpful to me. Um, 
Part two is about reconstruction, and we don't have Dr. Nikki Brown of the University of New Orleans here with us, but I'll just note that it's a very rich essay that really shows how Black inequality took shape in this period, um, how race riots, lynching, intimidation through terrorist organizations, for example, uh, and the complicity of the Supreme Court in uh, Williams versus Mississippi or Plessy v. Ferguson really created this, uh, or um, not created because the inequality is there from the beginning, but this this unequal positioning of Black citizens takes a different shape during this period. Um, we, we don't have Nikki here, but is, is there anybody who wanted to say anything in particular about that chapter before we move on to, to part three? Well, sorry, I... No, uh, yes, I actually, uh, Black Reconstruction, actually, we know uh, Black Reconstruction followed uh, slavery. And... Um, it's important, I think, for any uh, a scholar, any book on Black political thought. Uh, but uh, when I read uh, W.E.B. Du Bois's, uh, du Bois's Black Reconstruction, he asks some very brilliant question. Well, what what uh, is the purpose, or was the purpose of Reconstruction, and so on and so on. Uh, but uh, when you delve in deeper into uh, du Bois's Black Reconstruction. Uh, he tells us that uh, a reconstruction was just another form of uh, slavery, another form to uh, deprive Blacks of uh, equal humanity. Uh, so when uh, uh, this old landmark case of uh, Plessy versus Ferguson uh, came into being to create a separate but equal, uh, uh, one can see that uh, black people continue uh, to be unequal uh, because the question is whether a separate can ever be equal if resources are unequal. Uh, so I think uh, black uh, reconstruction is um, essential in that sense. Well, and it's been essential. It was a very helpful chapter for me, thinking about all of the events of this week. Um, I don't know when this podcast will drop, but we're recording this conversation um, on the day of George Floyd's funeral here in the United States, um, speaking from three different time zones here. And so, uh, you know, as, as I think about our events today and the um, the kind of scholarship that I sometimes get the honor of reading for the podcast, a really remarkable book by Gilda Daniels about voter suppression. She is always using Black Reconstruction as the, as the, as the lens by which we should see modern uh, attempts, for example, to suppress voting. So, um, and this is a very rich book, and listeners, we will never be able to uh, cover everything that it does so brilliantly. Um, and I, to this morning's New York Times, has an article about the books one should be reading this week in U.S. politics. This one isn't listed as one of the books that you should be reading about race, but I would say that there's no better book that you could actually be reading, because I think that... Uh, 
this collection is aimed at helping us understand how and why Blacks in the United States as individuals in a group have historically been thought of as unequal. And um, anyway, that's a, that's a pitch for buying the book. Before we turn to part three, which is called Black Sorry. Nationalism. Oh, yes, sir. Go ahead. I just wanted to add something to uh, Black Reconstruction, uh, too. Uh, the Reconstruction Amendments, uh, the 13th, 14th, and the 15th Amendment to American Constitution. Actually, uh, we know that the 13th Amendment uh, put an end to slavery. Uh, 14th Amendment due process. 15th Amendment uh, give a Black man, and I need to emphasize men, uh, the right to vote because, of course, uh, uh, a woman could not have voted uh, uh, mostly in, uh, in these elections. Uh, but the important point that I want to emphasize is that when uh, Black men uh, were uh, given the right to vote, uh, the Southern states implemented um, a certain uh, mechanism that would uh, deter uh, Black men from voting, like a poll tax, uh, the literacy test and the grandfather clause. And when this uh, didn't work, uh, the KKK uh, became this vigilante uh, terrorist group to uh, terrorize uh, uh, black men so that uh, black men would not go out and vote. No, thank you. And and part of um, Gilda Daniel's argument is that is that we, we see another version of that in the present um, in terms of trying to suppress the vote. But that's, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a terrific reminder of the extent to which the Constitution was meant to address this inequality and to change the positioning of citizenship that it was um, awarded both legally, politically, and uh, violently. And I just want, sorry, no, no, I just want to make one more point uh, that uh, my students uh, in criminal justice uh, uh, tell me that um, in some states, uh, if you have been incarcerated, uh, you cannot vote. So that's another way of uh, suppressing uh, Black people's uh, right to uh, vote. Correct. And and also, and the statistics all show that, um, in addition, disproportionately affecting Black male voting as well. Um, part three of the book is entitled Black Nationalism. And uh, uh, Babakar, you emphasize how many scholars have misunderstood Black nationalism because they have not thought of it in the context of Black cosmopolitanism. So can you start us off by defining uh, uh, Black nationalism and explaining why Black cosmopolitanism is so central? Yes, uh, thank you very much. Uh, So Black nationalism is a concept that is often used to describe the shared experience of solidarity, of, uh, you know, having gone through uh, I would say situations that are very common, situations of uh, marginalization, uh, disenfranchisement, uh, and also uh, dehumanization, belittling, you know, depersonalization, 
like any experiences that people of African descent globally, worldwide, whether it is uh, on the African continent or in the diaspora, uh, the United States, the Caribbean, uh, uh, South America, etc. You know, wherever you go, if you look at the histories of those black populations living there, you find shared experiences of exclusions, uh, uh, whether it's France, whether it's Britain, uh, etc. Uh, it even goes to the Arab world. Um, and, and now when you look at those shared experiences and you try to provide a historical contextualization for them, you can't help but go back into history, right? I mean, where was, and ask yourself the question, uh, where did these people of African descent come from? Of course, obviously they came from Africa. Uh, so they do have a homeland. Uh, this is their original homeland. Now, you also have to ask yourself the question, what are the historical events, the historical forces that led to their dispersal uh, uh, to their uh, transplantations in various parts of the world? Certainly, if you go to Jamaica today, you know, you find people that are very similar to people you meet in Ghana and people you meet in Senegal. Uh, you go to Trinidad, the same thing. Uh? Uh, you go to other parts of the diaspora, the same thing. And you ask yourself, but these are people that are very similar to my aunts in Senegal, to my uncles in uh, in Ivory Coast. So how come they are here? Uh, and then you go to Haiti, the same thing. And you ask yourself those questions. Then now, if you look at the works of uh, Edward Glisson and uh, some of the scholars of black nationalism, you find out that uh, there are, I would say, vestiges. There are uh, heritages uh, that these people share. And Du Bois is one of the scholars that has really, that have explained these connections between blacks of Africa and the diaspora. Uh, the, the the best. Uh? Now, to come back to nationalism, um, it refers to the resistance, right? The resistance against those forces that I just talked about. The resistance against the fragmentations, but against the belittling, against the, the dehumanization. And as one of my colleagues just talked about earlier, that resistance started with the transatlantic slave trade. You know, the moment the transatlantic slave trade began, People of African descent started to fight against it from Africa. Now, at least we do know that that resistance also started into the bellies of the ships. And there is a book by Michael A. Gomez entitled Exchanging Our Country Marks that describes how within the bellies of the ship, you had people of African descent of various ethnic groups, you know, realizing that they had to start to come up with a common way of understanding one another. Despite the differences, in their languages, in their ethnic groups, in their different geographical locations from which they were taken, they came from. So they started to have this sense of solidarity, you know? So I'm an Igbo, the other person is a Yoruba, the other person is a Mandingo, the other one is a Wolof. But because they were very, uh, I mean, aware of the fact that they had been kidnapped, something had happened to them, and that they were going into the unknown, they had to come up with codes of understanding and as uh, many other scholars explain later, right, uh, Sterling Stuckey, including Sterling Stuckey in uh, his book, Slave Culture, uh, Nationalist Theory and the Foundation of Black America, uh, Edward Franklin Fraser, etc. cetera. Uh, all these scholars have shown that what happened in the new world, uh, therefore, let's say, just like if we take the United States as part of the new world, uh, uh, what happened was the formation of a, a distinct form of black solidarity among these individuals. Uh, uh, against uh, all these forces that I just talked about. And then later on, so uh, by, I would say, 1816, you know, you had, therefore, in 1816, what I think the start of uh, the foundation of the uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church, huh, if I'm wrong, if I'm not wrong. Uh, 
Um, uh, by that time, you had all these nationalists, you know, including Bishop uh, Richard Allen, uh, Henry uh, McNeil Turner, and many others. You know, you had also uh, Alexander Crummel by that time that already emerged. So Sterling Saki talked about how uh, within that book and uh, um, by the early 18th, 19th century, you know, people of African descent here in the United States were grappling questions of shared heritage of what what it meant for them i mean should they be called african should they be called afro-american you know uh should they be you know should they should they have like a different appellations uh and and by the time uh garvey you know stepped in and du bois in the early 20th century you know th- those ideas those uh i would say discussions coalesced into something that could be called i would say a more potent form of black radicalism you know like and, and I think uh, uh, many of us here mentioned uh, uh, David Walker. Absolutely, I do agree that David Walker was um, almost like the founder, you know, of black nationalism, or one of the major founders of black nationalism and black radicalism. Uh, so by that time, by the early 20th century, uh, uh, that radicalism became, I would say, more apparent, starker, you know, and 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 uh, of course, it involved a lot of disagreements. Now. My critique uh, against, like, I would say, a number of scholars of cosmopolitanism or a number of scholars of black nationalism and black radicalism is that they ignore the fact that uh, black radicalism and black nationalism, even if they were staunch resistances against oppression, uh, also involve intellectual exchanges. You see, uh, they also involve, I would say, disagreements on what constituted that solidarity and how to create it you know, if it did not exist. Um, uh, and they have different options. For instance, like here you can talk about the differences uh, uh, between W.E.B. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey as to what freedom for Africa meant, huh? as to what uh, uh, freedom for people of African descent meant, how to achieve it, uh, uh, what would be the relationship between people of African descent and people of European descent, you know, all those kinds of questions. What would be the place of the Caribbean? Uh, now, the reason why I say that black nationalism, black radicalism, and even pan-Africanism in general were cosmopolitan was because I think at the center of those movements, there was this fundamental question that someone like Phyllis Wheatley, right? One of the first black uh, writers here in the United States, black woman writers, uh, asked in 1773 in her book, uh, you know, uh, uh, poems uh, on various subjects, religious or moral. Uh, and and what, what Whitley does in many of her poems is to ask herself the question, well, if we Blacks are considered inferior, but we end up embracing Christ and embracing religion and, uh, you know, and, and accepting God and accepting divine faith, you know, uh, can't we at least be considered as representations of what Christianity is supposed to stand for? So aren't we supposed to be equal like you, you know? Europeans who have rejected us and dehumanized us, you know, look at my brethren and, you know, sisters. Aren't they human like everybody else? So I think that is a question and that is a theory that uh, many black nationalists actually emphasize, huh? Um, and including, let us say, uh, Toussaint Louverture, Toussaint Louverture, who, you know, a Haitian who was the architect of the Haitian Revolution, huh? 1791, 1804. Because Toussaint Louverture was influenced by the French Revolution, 
right? Which also influenced the American Revolution. Uh, so, and, and also to, yeah. to interrupt, but you think, you think Haiti is central? It's really essential to understanding white supremacy, and I, I and I, I definitely want you to explain a little bit more about that. Why? Why is the fact that you have to explain the Haitian Revolution? How does that explain why it is that we have this uh, inequality? Yes, yes, yes. Very good point. Very good question. So. Uh, so you had the Haitian Revolution, and it was founded on the idea that, you know, liberty, equality, justice, you know, which are ideas that stemmed from the French Revolution, right, and influenced the American revolutionaries, you know. So those are the same ideas that uh, Black uh, intellectuals, Black nationalists, such as Toussaint Louverture, and the others, Marcus Garvey, Du Bois, and the others also emphasize and, uh, as human values, like these are uh, 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 liberties that, that people are born with, they must share across the board, you know, independently of their race, of their identity, of their origins. You know, Martin Luther King emphasized the same thing, you know, let's emphasize the content of our character rather than, you know, our racial heritage, you know. Uh, so, and uh, in 17, uh, 1917, July 2nd, 1917, you remember, uh, there was a riot, a riot uh, in uh, East St. Louis, like the East St. Louis riots, you know, and when it happened, uh, about uh, 39 blacks, uh, including many of them uh, immigrants, black immigrants, and nine whites were killed. And the, the, the riot started when whites in East San Luis, you know, started regarding uh, the black migrants as people who were taking away their jobs, you know, uh, and they, they brutalized them. And then Marcus Garvey, I think, became like one of the few and first leaders to really uh, uh, protest against that, that riot and also uh, to one of the first leaders to exhort blacks to stand up in 1917, you see? So you had this black Jamaican, you know, tall, uh, who was actually shy at the beginning, you know, take a, a staunch resistance against racial oppression here in the United States. Of course, you know, Du Bois and Garvey did not agree. You know, uh, there was a personal kind of, I would say, rivalry between them, uh, you know, and Du Bois disagreed on Garvey's approach uh, to fighting against uh, uh, oppression. Uh, but we do know that. Uh, and, uh, but w one thing we, that was clear there was that uh, that systemic racism uh, that existed in the United States, and, and uh, Professor Pinder already talked about that uh, through the failures of the Reconstruction, through the Jim Crow's existence and its aftermath. Um, so, so what we're going through right now in the United States, it's just like our, uh, consequences of that long history of dehumanization of Black people, of, of, of abject refusal uh, to partake, to, to, to share, uh, I would say, the benefits of cosmopolitanism. You know? And cosmopolitanism is a term that could be described as global citizenship. Uh, uh, it could also be defined as uh, the ideals that human beings deeply uh, share independently of their origins. Like, want to be rich. We all, in the end of the day, want to live in a nice house. We all want to, be ha want to have a car. We all want to be healthy, right? We all want to leave uh, wealth to our to our offsprings, right? But we are all selfish. So cosmopolitanism is not perfect, right? We are all selfish. You know, at the end of the day, we all have these, uh, I would say, uh, private, you know, leanings. You know, we are human beings. You know, we, the clan, the clan is important. The sect is important. At the end, you know, our family, our group, our community, we are gearing everything towards them. You know, in fact, Cosmopolitanism is very contradictory 
Because even if we say that we are global citizens, at the end of the day, you know, we are very private. We are local citizens, you know. So there are disagreements in all these different things. There's never like a, a consensus. Um, so my critique is that scholars of black nationalism and black radicalism and pan-Africanism often forget, you know, those other dimensions, like the disagreements between these intellectuals and the fact that, you know, uh, they were aware of the contradictions within Western societies. Um, and of course, I think one of the things that I consider as a strength of all of these movements is the ongoing resistance against oppression, uh, based not only on the, on, on the rejections of people of African descent, but also on, on the humanitarian values of those intellectuals, you know, like Garvey, etc. Now, thank you. Cheryl, did you have a question or a comment? Uh, yes, I just wanted uh, to add uh, that uh, because of the uh, Cartesian uh, binary of whites as superior and blacks as inferior, uh, I, I think it goes against uh, cosmopolitanism as well as uh, republicanism and democracy. And there's a, I'm glad you said that. There's a wonderful sentence at the end uh, of the section on Garvey uh, that says that you know the, the dire conditions connected to racism and systemic social inequalities prevail, and that contradicts cosmopolitanism, republicanism, and these democratic I- ideals. Um, and, and Babakar, you include very presciently, police brutality, poor health care, and, and racism. And, and I'm wondering, as you read the news today, how you connect it with the material that uh, the writings, the thinking that Garvey is doing in this seemingly very different time. Yeah, absolutely. Let's say, you know, we all remember what happened in 2018, you know, in the White House, one of the uh, press conferences, you know, uh, the current president of the United States, you know, made this derogatory remark against the uh, uh, Haitians, right? Uh, as coming from, you know, those types of countries. I can't even repeat the word that he used. Um, and, and it wasn't just Haitians, but it was also, it included uh, immigrants from Africa uh, and also from some parts of South America. You know, well, I mean, these these are human beings that, 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 that were being described. And uh, as you know, these have like some grave consequences on United States uh, policies, immigration policies uh, towards, uh, at least we do know, uh, towards uh, Nigerians, right? Uh, but there were some uh, actions and decisions made not long ago, uh, again, uh, towards barring, preventing uh, people from immigrating from Nigeria to the United States, at least temporarily. Um, and so this goes also to this just like general, I'll say, as a Western, not just American, but it's also French, uh, it's, it's British, uh, it's a, a Western belittling of people of African descent, seeing them as less than, you know, and the killing of George Floyd was, I think, one of the, uh, just another uh, blatant, you know, uh, I would say repetition, uh, reflection of example of that, that, that belittling that, uh, of people of African descent, you know, as if their lives are are worthless, you know, as if they can be treated like animals, you know, and, um, you know, so symbolically you can see that, you know, as the media has shown. I mean, this, uh, this is lynching, you know, but this lynching, this physical and mental and psychological lynching of people of African descent has been going on for a long time. 
it happened uh, during colonialism in Africa. You know, it happened uh, during even you know the post-colonial era. Uh, it happened during the uh, the antebellum and postbellum eras of slavery. Uh, it happened during Jim Crow, um, and uh, it literally serves to to re- to remind us, you know, um, of the the ongoing nature of systemic inequalities, you know, between not just blacks and white, but also between the global north and the global south. Uh, and and uh, it's just like a racism that always constantly uh, rears its heads. In, in, in America, it's frequent. You know, I was just watching a, a, a documentary, um, actually a news a discussion in Senegal, you know, in French, about the racial situation in the United States. And and the, the experts there described it just like as a repetition of something that has been going on in the United States for a long time. Um, um, so, of course, uh, these these attitudes have deep-seated motivations. They're not they're not banal, you know. They're not uh, you know accidental, you know. I think they are part of a structure um, that black nationalists, including Stockley Carmichael, you know, were aware of. And for them, you know, including especially Du, Bo- uh, du Bois and uh, Marcus Garvey and all the others, uh, uh, James Theodore Hawley, uh, for them, one way to really resist that belittling and you know of people of African descent was to show that people of African descent came from great civilizations, great cultures, cultures that were complex politically, socially, intellectually. Uh, and that's why I think uh, Pan-Africanism was important. You know, Holly was one of the Pan-Africanists. He went to uh, Haiti to create that connection. And he was not the only one. You know, James Weldon Johnson also went to Haiti. Uh, Frederick Douglass went to Haiti. I mean, a number of uh, uh, African-American intellectuals went to Haiti and other parts of the Caribbean to create those connections. And Garvey, you know, at that, tried to do the same thing when it come, came to Africa. You know, to establish connections with Africans, although he never went there. But he strongly influenced African nations, African political leaders, and, and helped them understand their relationships with France, with Europe. Um, and, and their resistance, I think, all of them, was based on the need to really organize. You know, you know, Because one thing that has come clear is that you know, if Africa can stand strong, if Africa can stand strong as Europe, people of African descent worldwide will never be treated like this again. You know, we do know the role that Africa plays economically in the world, socially in the world. You know, uh, so if Africa could just get its things together, you know, uh, then then you know this idea of return, of going and coming back, this idea of being black and having you know ownership in the United States and also in Africa at the same time is possible. And Du Bois really, you know, uh, embraced that in, in, in his work. Garvey really wanted that to happen. Now, we're, not, we, we're trying to stay away from an essentialist representation of blackness in Africa. You know, we're not saying, oh, uh, African civilizations, black civilizations are perfect, uh, absolutely great, no problems, no uh, contradictions. No, we're not saying that it is possible to return to great civilization. We're not saying that. You know, but we're just saying that it should be possible to have some form of economic cooperation, political cooperation, so that people of African descent in the diaspora are not going to perceive themselves in the ways Westerners are used to perceive them. You see, as nothing, as less than. 
And that's a terrific segue to um, part four, because I think part, Sharice, uh, of the value and the, uh, of this chapter, and I found it incredibly helpful, is, is a conversation that is happening within the Black community about how to solve problems. And there's tension between thinking of uh, these as problems that can be solved from within by actions, by changing manners, as opposed to seeing uh, the problems as structural. And uh, you described this uh, sort of remarkable move over time. So um, I, I do want to note that uh, Professor Mbai has to go to a meeting, and so uh, I will, he will stay as long as he can, but I will just take the time right now to sort of thank him for making the time to participate today. It's always difficult to find a time when we're in this many time zones. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you to each of you. So Sharice, um, tell us a little bit about this movement that happens uh, within the Black community as they talk about how to solve problems and this particular, this movement from uh, du Bois to Ida B. Wells, which is so beautifully um, and uh, 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 in such a nuanced way described in your chapter. Sure. I mean, I, I think I just want to start um, by giving some of the the backdrop of what's happening. Um, all of these, these the pieces that are in um, the section about which I wrote are written in the 1880s. So, of course, this is the moment during which not only um, the end of Reconstruction has set in, um, you know, the corrupt bargain, right, is in 1877, but also this is the moment in which the United States is, number one, um, consolidating its empire. So this is the rise of U.S. imperialism with things like um, the Spanish-American War, the annexation of uh, the the Philippines, and um, those sorts of imperial projects. So we see a coalescence of U.S. imperialism on the one hand, and then the entrenchment of um, a particular epoch of, of anti-Blackness um, on the other hand. At the same time, this is also the beginning of what's called the progressive era. And so what I um, do in my paper is distinguish between, on the one hand, the period between 1818, or 1880 and 1920 being referred to as the progressive era, right? The, area, the era in which the United States is on its way to becoming um, a, an international or a global power um, through industrialization um, and through its sort of um, um, economic ascent. Um, and, and this is an era of progressive, you know, quote unquote, progressive reform. It's an era of trying to figure out um, Americanism writ large, that is to say how to incorporate um, the immigration of all of these sort of the, the sort of integration of ethnic whites into the larger American idea. And so, and there's the rise of sort of, um, of an emphasis on charity and creating public space um, in order to, to create a, a more inclusive and a more uh, progressive Americanism. But this is also a period that uh, Rayford Logan names the Nadir, right? Um, with respect to black people, whereby there's an increase in lynching um, there is a, an attack on um, Black franchise, as, as some of my colleagues has, have mentioned. And there's just a general sense of um, sort of 
an attack on on Black life at this moment. And so it's within this context that uh, Crummel, Du Bois, and Ida B. Wells are writing. And so part of what I try to pull out is there are different approaches and different understandings to how this problem might be resolved. So on the one hand, they're engaging what comes to be known as the Negro problem. On the other hand, they're they're engaging what I might call the white problem. That is to say that racism is the white problem, right? And so the Negro problem to me relates to their ideas of self-help, racial uplift, uh, the way in which one might perform a type of racial citizenship in order to be recognized by the mainstream society um, in order to be able to enjoy and receive the rights that um, were ostensibly granted by the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. Um, And so at this time, they are, these writers are taking race as a a sociological, historical, and spiritual fact, but really challenging race as a biological fact and one of sort of racial ordering along the lines of superior and inferior. Um, And out of this particular understanding, they're offering ways to to achieve Black self-determination, Black self-sufficiency, Black economic empowerment. But all of this is in the context of very virulent and very um, um, systemic white supremacy. And so even at, so they're, they're really pointing out the dilemma that comes out of the conjuncture of Black with American, right? So on the one hand, there's an exce- excessiveness to Black Americanness, whereby one has to go above and beyond what's promised to the mainstream society for Black people to be, a- to be able to enjoy even basic rights. On the other hand, there's this this idea, there's this constitutive lack um, that that is a part of the black experience, whereby blacks are understood to not possess the accoutrements or the necessary condi- conditions of belonging and recognition. And so, it's this sort of dilemma between excess and lack that people like Crummel, Du Bois, and Ida B. Wells are trying to navigate. Um, what I point out, what's interesting about well, Wells's piece is that. She's very much on board with this um, this uplift, self-help um, narrative of, of racial progress until the lynching of, of some of her friends, which brings her to the conclusion that it doesn't matter how good Black people are. It doesn't matter how much they save, right? How... how um, prudent they are, um, how much they adhere to Victorian ethics, because white supremacy will never recognize them as human. And that if if they don't have protection from the law, if they don't have the right to vote, if they don't have any sort of access to protect their life and property, that none of these, these cultural um, performances of good citizenship will matter. And so it's an interesting tension between um, Crummel and Du Bois on the one hand, and then uh, Wells on the other hand. Uh, the interesting intervention, I think, with Du Bois and conservation of the races has to do with, again, the ways in which he's engaging in this ethnological discourse that's very prevalent at the time. But he's he's using a cultural and sociological understanding of ethnology as opposed to a biological one. So he's, he's challenging people like um, Herbert Spencer, who are 
um, adhering, who are using ethnology to argue for white superiority and black inferiority. Rather, Du Bois is saying that black, like culturally and spiritually, uh, black people have something to contribute to like the brotherhood of races. And therefore he's offering a sort of historical understanding of, of um, race relations as opposed to a sort of um, a, a vertical and a, a naturalized one. So um, these are some of the dynamics that I was attempting to get at in, um, in my piece. No, I thought it was terrific. And especially the part about, uh, I really appreciated how you talked about Du Bois's conception of race and, and, and his belief in race in some way, but how it is different from the white racism. I thought that part was, was really, really helpful. And on Ida B. Wells, I wanted to push you a little bit on that. I think one of the uh, brilliant parts of your essay is, is how, how you show Ida B. Wells as this remarkable uh, prescient political strategist. So she, she looks and she sees that without the vote, there's no way for citizens to affect local politics. They can't actually change the laws. They can't throw people out of office. So that part of democratic government is shut down to them. Um, the courts are not helping them or seeing it differently. And, and, and so she sees that the law would have to, the law would have to change, but it, and, and excuse me if I'm getting it wrong, the book is so rich and I can't remember what happens always in which chapter, but I'm pretty sure you make the point that she emphasizes the importance of the national government stepping in at this point and sees that tension, which I thought was fascinating because that's something that, uh, that Charles Hamilton Houston is going to see years later uh, as he's strategizing to desegregate public schools. Um, is, is that right that she understands the national government as, as, as a necessary component of undoing this equal positioning, unequal positioning? Absolutely. Right. So she understands. So it's, it's this sort of what will come to be known as like states rights for, you know, this issue of states rights. And what essentially what she's arguing is that the federal government needs to step in on behalf of black people because you cannot leave the idea of justice, there is, there's really no justice for black people in these Southern states. And because the very persons who are supposed to be the arbiters of justice are participating in the lynch mobs, right? These are the very people who are invested in undermining any idea of black equality uh, before the law or otherwise. And so they're net, so the federal government necessarily needs to step in. And the other good point or interesting point I think she makes is that this attack on blacks is an attack on the federal government. It's a it's a rejection by white racists and white supremacists of the very foundations of um, of the United States. And in, in making this argument, she is asserting black citizenship and in, asserting the um, the responsibility of the federal government to intervene on behalf of black people against these persons who are effectively um, disrespecting and disregarding um, con the constitution and and um, the foundations, uh, the very ideals of of the U.S. government. So, um, so yes, I think that you're you're correct in in your assessment. 
And that's fascinating because if you think back to the Federal Convention, it's the Federalists, capital F, who are the nationalists, and they're saying this is what is the necessary component to make the United States. And it is so interesting to see how that has played out to our present time about the tension between whether we want the national government, the state governments to have this kind of power. Um, I wanted to ask you a question. Oh, and you also make a fantastic point in the chapter about the Constitution and the ways in which in this period, the First Amendment, Second Amendment, Fourteenth Amendment, Fifth Amendment are, are all denuded for Black citizens. And, the, uh, and so, again, this sort of constitutional dilemma that is pointed out in this period. Um, the, the question I wanted to ask you, well, two, two questions. One has to do with manhood um, and the extent to which the, the, the conceptualization of self-help at this time is tied to manhood and masculinity. And also to ask you a little bit about religion in this period and the role that it plays. Yeah, so I think I think there's definitely a gendered understanding of the relationship between citizenship and manhood. Um, but something else to note um, is in terms of ethnological discourse, um, there are masculine and feminine races. And so often an appeal to manhood is also an appeal to moving the black race from the position of being a feminine race to a masculine race. And so there's ways in which, for example, when people like Anna Julia Cooper call for um, the necessity of black men to protect black women, um, this could be interpreted as a sort of um, an investment in um the cultivation of black manhood or an investment in particular as a particular type of patriarchy. Um, but ultimately it's about what it means to be, or what it means to achieve um, the level of, uh, of a masculine race. Um, that being said, I do think that um, because of the patriarchal nature of um, the capitalist world system in general, I do think that there is there is a way in which citizenship is often understood in terms of, um, or black citizenship that is, is understood in terms of a reclamation of, of black manhood and all that that entails, um, the ability to um, to be economically self self sufficient, the ability to protect one's family, the ability to have safety in one's person, um, you know, the ability to protect property. I think that all of those things become associated with um, the reclamation of manhood. And we see this discourse um, throughout, you know, I, I would say throughout history, but there's also a, a component of a particular type of womanhood that black women want to be able to inhabit as well, which has to do with, um, safety from white barbarism. So I think that Black women are, are um, taking up a, a particular aspect of, of womanhood that has to do with being able or having safety from um, the attacks of white men and the systematic and arbitrary rape of white men. And so um, the politics of respectability and the politics of racial uplift with regard to Black womanhood are very, very much bound up in um, I think ideas of 
equality and parity between the sexes, but also um, shining a light on the fact that things like lynching um, conceal the fact that Black women are by and large the victims of um, of interracial rape. Um, and Ida B. Wells actually points to this in her piece when she talks about, you know, when she makes this critique of this story about lynching, when she says that if you actually shine the light on white womanhood, you'll see that a lot of these couplings between Black men and white women are actually consensual. And that, um, you know, so th- that lie is very, is very, very flimsy. With respect to uh, religion, so I, I refer to this as Black evangelicalism. And essentially, there's a way in which Alexandra Crumble is making the argument that um, Christian, that true Christianity, the practice of true Christianity um, is actually a practice of, um, sorry, that, that, um, Christian, that if it is that persons are um, going to be, are going to purport to be Christians, they essentially can't be racist. That is to say that racism contravenes all of these ideals of, um, of Christianity like um courage and leadership and um and equality and so he's using christian language to be able to um to rash to not rationalize but to to point to why it is that equality must be a feature of um of of u.s society no, that's really helpful. And, and Brenda, I was thinking a little bit about your chapter in terms of religion, particularly Christianity, and the role that it has in shaping the narrative of anti-slavery. Well, uh, Christianity is really important in the thinking about abolition, many of the people who are associated with Christianity, um, with um, abolition, excuse me, are um, Christian and they're very publicly Christian. And so they associate their work as activists, as social justice activists, as being part of their work as a Christian. And of course, that brings in all kinds of sense of Um, actually not being as Christian as you can be. Um, Because if we get back to the notion of the inequalities and the way in which the abolitionist project was implemented, we can see that although these people would say as Christians that they are all equal before God, they still held these notions of, or some of them, of Black inferiority, of female inferiority, um, et cetera. But of course, um, if you were to define the typical white abolitionists at the time, and most of the black abolitionists that we know of um, who lived in the Northeast or the Midwest, they would define themselves as Christian, and they certainly would see their work as part of their work as a Christian. Um, Mariah Stewart, of course, is particularly well known um, for her work, um, her sense of herself as um, a revolutionized Christian in a way, and this kind of liberatory theology that she's very much um, invested in, and the other people as well. And when they look at Southerners or slaveholders um, who then are say that they are Christian, then of course they can draw all kinds of criticisms about how these people are not Christians 
And oftentimes you see, even in the work that's done by people who, um, like Harry Jacobs, for example, or like Elizabeth Keckley, who write about their lives as being enslaved women, they talk about um, the rapes, the threat of rape, and they also talk about the physical abuse, the being you know, um, their clothing being pulled down and their backs being lacerated by these people who are reverends or these people who you see in the church every Sunday who always um, ex- supposedly expose themselves as Christians, um, as the kind of evil that slavery um, is able to present itself. Um, even in a person who declares himself as being Christian. You can kind of think of it as the fourth, uh, you know, level of hypocrisy along with Republicanism, cosmopolitanism and democracy is, is, is the Christianity that Christianity has, it has the tools and principles to push back against slavery, but that's not. It is used that way, and you can see that in somebody like Garrison, maybe, but it, it isn't universal. There is this this hypocrisy. Well, there's a hypocrisy also um, just in the notion that the same people who would enslave Black people would say they're not Christian. I mean, one of the first ways in which people were enslaved was not to be a Christian. So you see, for example, in the 17th century, when Africans are arriving, many of them are trying to become baptized or trying to be declared as Christian because that would then exempt them from lifelong slavery. So Christianity and and enslavement or oppression are very much linked together. So people would say that black people are barbaric and because when we went to Africa, they were not Christians and what we're doing, you know, um, in terms of enslaving them is also Christianizing them and therefore slavery is a positive good, um, et cetera. So we see that Christianity is actually used hand in hand with oppression of peoples. And we see it, you know, in missionaries and not just people who are slaveholders, but we certainly do see it um, in the early churches, every denomination. Um, of, of the early churches um, in the um, America, um, in the Americas, and in the United States, even Quakers still held slaves well into the 19th century um, in Virginia, North Carolina, some places in Maryland as well. And so, you know, this notion that being a Christian would make you exempt. Um, from enslavement that disappeared by the end of the 17th century. Um, the notion that if you were not a Christian, then you were a barbarian and therefore should be enslaved continued well into the 19th and in, even today. And um, so there, Christianity is very much implicated and implemented um, um, in this process. Yeah, that's, it's, uh, it's horrifying and fascinating. Um, Sharice, uh, I, I wanted to make sure that we, uh, that I had, um, everything that you wanted to say about, uh, religion and gender or anything else in your chapter before we turn to these issues of feminism and the extent to which, um, black women get included in those definitions. Yeah. So the other thing, I mean, a couple of other things that I mentioned with respect to religion is the sort of. Um, the the bourgeois nature of the understanding of the ways in which um, sort of secularism came together with like Christian ideals of um, 
thrift and morality and virtuousness. So that is to say, like somebody like um, Alexandra Crummel was highly critical of the more like emotionalist or emotive forms of worship um, and the ways that, you know, Black people, specifically um, Southern Black people worship. And so the, so there's a way in which religious ideals and um, notions of racial uplift come together with a particular um, effort to sort of discipline or to um, to control the sort of the masses of Black people into a particular way of um, of comporting that is um, complicated. Uh, it's complicated, <laughs> I guess that we can say. Um, and I, I guess the last thing that I will add just about this particular um, this particular era in general is that if I had chosen another thinker to to include, it would be George Washington would be, because this is also the moment of the rise of socialism in the United States. And George Washington would be, of course, the first um, Black socialist. He's also a preacher. And so there's a way in which Christianity becomes very, very important for understanding um, socialism for Black people. Um, and it also, um, you know, especially by the turn of the century, people like Hubert Harrison and Grace Campbell and the African Blood Brotherhood, more and more Black people are turning to socialism um, and thinking about that as a tool for um, for Black freedom. So just wanted to throw that in there. No, and I imagine it must have been very hard to limit some of the authors. And I mean, for example, Martin Luther King or Malcolm X are not here. They're elsewhere. And so this is not a book that re that retravels over the same trodden road. And um, but on the other hand, it must have been awfully difficult to to leave certain elements out, which of course is the issue of any anthology. Um, let me turn to the last part, uh, which is part five, which is called Feminism and Difference. And Cheryl Pinder is is the author of the introduction you know, essay to that to that section. Um, Cheryl, you're trying hard here to explain a lot of things at the same time and also to kind of summarize the, the arc of the book. And and one of the claims is that that black women have been outside of feminism. They've been outside, as Audre Lorde would say, this this acceptable, this category of acceptable woman. And and your essay shows how black feminism has tried to reimagine the category of women in order to include black women and, and show how their lived experience can only be um, handled in a new framework. So, and, and I have to say that it rung even truer in this 100th anniversary of, in quotations, women's suffrage, which is often not accompanied by a very nuanced discussion of the fact that it was generally about white women's suffrage. And though many people, including Ida B. Wells, may have participated, the, the fault lines there of who's whose suffrage was most important um, have seemed this year to to really be um, dramatic. 
So anyway, I was wondering if you could start us off by uh, helping explain this idea of being outside feminism and okay, what thank the you for the question. And in order to think about uh, this question, we need to uh, have a kind of uh, genealogy of feminism, first and second wave feminist. Uh, the focus was on gender inequality. And so uh, the third wave of feminism, which is black feminism, uh, was responding to the first and second wave of feminism to say that race and gender are not mutually exclusive categories of oppression for a black woman, but uh, intersect. Uh, to oppress a black woman in very specific way. Uh, so the question uh, that we need to uh, think about is what is woman? And uh, the simple answer is white is what woman is, or white is what a woman is, and not white. Uh, the stereotypes are just uh, conjure up. Uh, and so uh, I think this section on uh, feminism and difference is important. It's very uh, gene genealogical because it starts off with uh, Mary Church Terrell uh, questioning the category of woman and uh, talking about uh, what she called a radical uh, emancipation practice uh, so that uh, black women, even though black women have been uh, very uh, eloquent in uplifting uh, the race as well as the gender, uh, black women are not included in, uh, in history. And so uh, she said one of the reasons for this is this problem of what she called the race of womanhood, right? And so that's where uh, Intersectionality uh, is very important uh, to talk about the intersection of race, uh, gender, class, sexuality, age, and so on and so on. I myself do not work uh, with an intersectionality framework uh, because I am a race scholar and a feminist too, but I talk about race as a signifier that is pegged to the other signifies, and the other signify are the identity markers like gender and class and disability and uh, uh, and so on. And so uh, I think uh, following up from uh, Mary Church Terrell, uh, we can see that the woman question is still with us today. Uh, because uh, 2015, I mentioned uh, this in the uh, in the book. 2015, the Queen of Soul, Rita Franklin, uh, she's screaming out on the top of her voice, uh, singing at uh, uh, the uh, at the Kennedy uh, Center. Uh, you make me feel like a natural woman. And I think it's important uh, to recognize that, well, of course, there is nothing like a natural woman, right? But even in the naturalization of womanhood, right, a black women are denaturalized. So uh, uh, Rita Franklin screams on top of her voice, you make me feel like a natural woman. So um, 
it's important uh, to uh, try to decipher uh, Patricia Hill's Collins concept of uh, what's in the name, uh, whether uh, as black feminists, uh, we should uh, talk about womanism or a black feminism. And I think it's uh, more and more I'm thinking about uh, what's in a name. Uh, you know, naming is a very uh, uh, essential for citational practice because when you are named inferior, when you are named a second-class citizen, you take on these names. And you're always in expectation to be inferior, to act like a second-class citizen and so on. Uh, but what interests me about Patricia Collins' uh, article is this whole question about feminism and womanism. And we know that womanism was a uh, respond to feminism because because the uh, second wave of feminism and the women's uh, movement excluded the concern of black uh, women. And so many black women were disgruntled uh, uh, with uh, feminism. And so uh, uh, they uh, started to think in terms of uh, Alice Walker's uh, concept of uh, womanism. And so when you read uh, Patricia Hill's uh, Collins article, uh, the question that comes to mind is whether uh, Black feminism or womanism is a useful framework for analyzing how uh, Black uh, woman or position uh, as, uh, well, I say the other of the other, because Black women, even though they're the same as white women, they're other. And then uh, when you put uh, a black woman within the larger framework of patriarchal, horrible uh, predisposition, they're other again. So they're the other of the other. And uh, I think uh, the uh, last chapter on uh, 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 Lemon's uh, chapter uh, is very extremely important. And his title, uh, from the title of the chapter, we can tell where he's going with it. Uh, and I want to make sure that I get the title correctly. Uh, it is to be black, male, and feminist. Yeah? To be black, male, and feminist. And some, uh, something about uh, making a space uh, for uh, black men. Uh, to uh, be feminist, right? And uh, I like the way uh, uh, Lemons kind of reconfigured uh, this uh, notion of feminism. And, and feminism is not just about gender inequality, but it's about inequality as a whole. And to uh, feminism need to open up to embrace all forms of inequality. And of course, uh, Lemons uh, tells us for this to be possible, uh, there has to be a new, a different pedagogical approach uh, to these uh, to issues of inequality, right? Uh, and this is where teachers uh, uh, come in to uh, broaden uh, their curriculum to include uh, writings uh, by uh, uh, Black uh, feminist uh, scholars. And um, so the question is, uh, even though uh, we are all women and we're feminist, and uh, 
it's important in this uh, neoliberal uh, uh, climate uh, to create solidarity between women, or uh, not so- solidarity, a social bond. Uh, between a woman, I think uh, it's important, as I mentioned in the book, that we are this plural first person. We are not the same uh, when we're thinking about fighting uh, difference. But as you mentioned, Audre Lorde, uh, uh, you know, she said, uh, we have got to learn to take our differences and make it our strengths. Right, because uh, feminism—it's not an academic task. It's to learn to take all these differences and make uh, make it our strengths. Uh, so I'm very uh, much concerned about uh, white women having an hegemonic uh, position within a, a, a feminist discourse, uh, because we know whiteness is the norm, right? Uh, and what I can say about a norm, a norm is never originary. It's always an outcome of the anti-normative. And the anti-normative, in this case, it's blackness. So we can say that blackness comes before whiteness. So whiteness has to constantly, constantly refurbish itself through laws, policy, cultural expectation to remain the norm. I uh, saw so in the uh, in the section I make a, a point to say that whiteness uh, sorry that white women would have to learn unlearn their privilege as a lost. I take this from uh, the postcolonial scholar uh, Gayatri chapter G Spivak uh, and well of course there are all kinds of privilege that all of us do have, uh, but uh, in terms of white women, there are a certain privilege uh, that it uh, takes uh, for granted because whiteness is the norm. And to unlearn this privilege as a loss, uh, it means that we have to give up uh, a certain uh, conceptualization about um, inequality and try to uh, work towards a social bond between a woman, but of course this is very difficult because, as I said, whiteness is the norm. Uh, and so uh, the next chapter talks about whiteness as the norm and how to denormalize whiteness, which is uh, very complicated stuff that I don't uh, uh, want to even get into. Uh, but I think uh, with all the uh, demonstrations and uh, rioting and all this stuff that are going on at present, uh, I think it's important. It's very important. Uh, But the question uh, still uh, remains if uh, this is a denormalizing whiteness as the norm. We still need to confront uh, that uh, very important question. Cheryl, with your permission, I want to read something that you wrote um, in this chapter. Um, given that the human, <clears throat> sorry, given that the human was conceptualized as white and male, the man, in quotes, of reason with access to rights and entitlement in Western modernity, blacks from the start were and continue to be outside of the category of the human. More recently, the Black Lives Matter movement surfaced 
to protest state-sanctioned violence perpetrated against Blacks because Blackness is viewed as a liability. And I, I know that's just repeating what you just said, and it's your own words, but I thought it might be a really great way for us to um, talk about the book as a whole and its importance to this moment. I agree with, with you that to, while we're speaking, all of this protesting is happening, uh, to have uh, any of you, all of you, uh, comment on how you see the book in the context of this time, how the book relates to Black Lives Matter. Any question, really, you want to ask? I don't want to include well, your comment. Uh, if I can say, I think uh, Black political thought is extremely important uh, uh, for this uh, moment uh, where uh, institutionalized violence is a uh, 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 selling like hotcakes is if I can use that expression. And um, uh, the question is uh, for us to think about race um, as this phantomagoric creation, this social concept, and it organized uh, a black uh, a black person's identification process. So uh, for instance, uh, when we think about uh, racial profiling, for example, is that uh, because, uh, and I'm using a, 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 a fan, Fanon's language, the Fanonian language, that race because it is overdetermined from the outside, right? Uh, so uh, Black uh, people are always racially profiled because the, of the, to put it in a different way, the outsideness of uh, uh, Blackness. And then uh, Blacks are not as seen as uh, completely human, uh, because this goes back to uh, slavery time, right? Uh, and that's why uh, Friedrich Douglass can ask in what to the slave uh, is the 4th of July, must I undertake to prove that the slave is a man? But of course, he doesn't need to prove that the slave is a man, right? The laws and the institutions and the epistemologies and ideologies and cultural practices prove that the slave is a man. Uh, but of course, uh, not just any man, a man that is, and I'm using man in quotation marks here, right? A man, as uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, writes, uh, that is inferior, both in body and soul, uh, to uh, the white man. So that's why I can say in the book that uh, uh, the white man become a man, in quotation mark, uh, by uh, depriving black people of, uh, of uh, what you call practical reason. Uh, because, of course, when blackness enter into the arena, reason go through the window, right? Even the most uh, intellectual uh, and sophisticated, uh, culturally refined white person cannot move from this racialized habitus of uh, black people as inferior and so on, right? So this over-determination from the outside, this outsideness of blackness, I think is something that uh, the book uh, encourages us uh, to really uh, think about uh, what is, it means to be black in uh, the United States, uh, given that police continue uh, to uh, dehumanize, well, not just the police, the systems, ideology, discourses, 
practices are discursive as well as non-discursive, continue continue to position uh, Blacks as a, a, a second-class citizen, continue to position Black outside of the, the arena of the human, right? So then I think uh, I always go back uh, to Fanon when he said, uh, you know, white people, in order for uh, something to happen, the protesting and writing and all those things are good. Uh, very good. Uh, it's a starting point, but uh, whites uh, would have to touch the other, feel the other. Uh, and uh, in other words, he's saying not to be the other, but be in the other, in the Nietzschean sense that I am not the forest, but I am in the forest. So when you be in the other world, then you can uh, uh, really uh, unlearn uh, your racism. But of course, I'm not trying to prescribe that uh, 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 Blacks uh, should take over as superior to whites, right? Uh, uh, actually, in the Fanonian sense, uh, they shouldn't shouldn't you, we should get rid of the comparison, right? And we should create equal humanity and this all uh, uh, a kind of a racial egalitarianism that uh, David Walker uh, from the very uh, beginning uh, uh, tried to push for. Um, yeah, so just some some thoughts going off of much of what um, Cheryl said about, um, you know, needing to sort of confront and decenter whiteness. Well, I have um, one of my realities in this moment has been, you know, a, an inundation of emails about readings that can give insight into this moment. And so I think that obviously this book um, is a starting point, but I think that the question of decentering and confronting whiteness is a, is an important one because even these well-meaning requests for you know reading lists or when 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 you know our our white colleagues or allies send us emails about how we're doing but then center how they're feeling or their understanding of this moment um, it makes that care burdensome and so. I think that part of confronting whiteness is doing some of the work and not expecting and not taking this moment as a sort of um, as another responsibility for black people to educate, but rather really, you know, um, you know, the language that Cheryl just used in terms of um, being inside the other, that is to say, like doing that sort of work so it doesn't become a recentering of what what white folks need in this moment. The other thing I'll say about the text is that I think that what it conveys is is the heterogeneity and diversity of thought um, among Black people, that we are not a homogenous or, or monolithic people and that we think and understand and desire for many, many different things. And so we see this happening during the protests and during the uprisings with some people condemning um, you know, quote unquote, riots and, and looting and some people wanting for peaceful protests, but some people wanting um, to engage in more militant or um, violent acts. And I think that all of those, none of those are the authentic or the good or real expression of blackness. I think that they, there's room for all of it and that 
nobody really has the moral authority to say that one or the other forms of of confronting this moment of systematic and um, continual and um, you know state anti-black state repression that that none of it should be illegitimated right for for a sort of imposition of one way of engaging and I just want to add a quickly to something is that uh, we have got to be careful uh, when uh, we uh, not to make whiteness anxious uh, because when whiteness uh, uh, gets anxious you end up with Donald Trump uh, well uh, actually uh, to be a little bit more serious, but that's serious. You end up with a president uh, that is uh, so anti-democratic and so on, takes the demons out of democracy uh, uh, very uh, viciously. And, uh, of course, when whiteness got anxious, we got uh, slavery, um, uh, uh, Jim Crow, South Chinese internment, uh, sorry, Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, Japanese internment camp, and actually more uh, more recently, uh, uh, we've got Arizona ten seventy, uh, which is uh, uh, this law in Arizona where the police can go up to a person who uh, look uh, and look is the key word, right? As undocumented, and say, "Show me your papers," and so on and so on. Uh, another. Uh, a sophisticated way of racially uh, profiling people of color. And so uh, my point is uh, we talk or I talk about denormalizing whiteness. Uh, uh, we've got to be careful not to make whiteness anxious. Uh, but as I said, and Therese uh, 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 extended it, is not to be the other, but to be in the other, right? Thanks. Um, I'd just like to add that I think the book is very important um, at this moment and really in any moment because it does speak to the longevity of the problem that we are confronting today. And it also speaks to the longevity of the resistance to the problem that we are confronting today. Um, and as my other um, co-panelists have said, it also indicates the heterogeneity of the response um, as well as uh, which are intellectually and practically foundational um, to the freedom movement um, as we see it today, as we've seen it in the past. I think it's important that people from all walks of life have participated in it. It's not a class-bound project. It is one in which people who were from the urban South, the urban North, um, the rural South, et cetera, have participated men, women, people who were born free, people who were enslaved, um, people who were well-educated, people who were self-educated, et cetera. So it gives us a window into how change um, is affected, how resistance is affected. It is a collaborative um, effort. It is not a single person is not a single practice. It is collaborative. It is continuous. Um, it is, it, it involves people. It's inclusive. It's exclusive. It's all of those things, but it is resistance to dehumanization, resistance to inequality, um, resistance to being thought as an other or less than. And so I think the book 
provides a window into this long process, this long freedom and equality movement um, and the various ways that we have invested in it and will continue to invest in it. Well, I want to thank you all. I think it's a terrific book. I think it has a remarkable um, uh, set of resources attached to it. Uh, Teresa, I, I agree, and I've seen a lot of Twitter on this. It's not the responsibility of uh, Black scholars to now educate uh, whites in this moment. And there are resources everywhere. Um, this book is one of them. Um, many of your all of your other books, um, and we will have links uh, on the website. Um, I want to urge people not just to read the list of books that was in the New York Times this morning, but to, to, to think broader and to think about Black political thought from David Walker to the present, edited by Cheryl Pender and published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. It's available on the Cambridge website and all the places where you normally buy books online but it's also available from bookshop.org, which is a way of supporting brick and mortar bookstores during while they're closed during the pandemic. Uh, it'll send the books right from your local stores to your home. So think about that as well. Um, I want to thank you all for taking the time out today uh, to have this discussion and, um, uh, and look forward to using this book and um and i have to say it was a great companion for me this week thank you thank you